1: Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to entrepreneur Edwina Dunn. She is the woman behind the data science company that invented the Tesco Club card, of all things, and went on to transform retail. But she's also a philanthropist who set up a global movement called the Female Lead.
2: When I walked into all these boardrooms, it was all men. When I was at school, all the heroes and leaders were men. When you Google leader, CEO, high achiever, it's all men. So as a woman, you know, what are we taught about the expectation of life in the future? It's still get married and live happily ever after. It's kind of outdated. So what we want to do is show women that there are Women alive today. So not just Marie Curie and Ada Lovelace and all these old dead women. We want to show living, breathing, amazing women, high achievers. We want to share their stories.
1: But before we hear more from Edwina Dunn, I want to tell you about a brilliant new book that's being launched this week. It's called The Road to Repeal 50 Years of Struggle in Ireland for Contraception and Abortion. It's edited by Trace Carthy, Pauline Conroy, and that wonderful photographer Derek Spears. And it's a powerful look back over fifty years of activism by women in Ireland. It's full of photos old pamphlets, loads of souvenirs from the time, and of course, text, starting with the story of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, which burst onto the streets and screens of a society bewildered by women demanding equal status in the home and in the workplace. And that first meeting of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement happened in the Mansion House in 1971, which is the same place where the book was launched this week. So I'm a bit biased because I launched the book for Pauline and Treys uh, but I really cannot tell you how great it is. The book tracks the bitter backlash to the success of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement that culminated in the Eighth Amendment being inserted into the Constitution in 1983. And it brings us right up to today and the incredible success of the Together for Yes campaign in repealing the Eighth. And it brings us up to abortion services being provided in Ireland today, even though, as we know, it's not perfect in terms of provision. As I said, I launched the book last night, but I really recommend it as a memento of everything Irish women have been through in fighting for our bodily autonomy. It's a really important book about remembering because when we look at America, we can see how there is no room for complacency when it comes to our rights. It's really a fascinating look back at the stories and struggles in the book. For example, 27 year old Mary McGee was a housewife from County Louth living in a caravan with her four children. And her husband, that was back in the early 70s, she had experienced complications with her last pregnancy and was told by a doctor that having another child would put her life in danger. So following medical advice, she ordered spermicidal jelly from England. But because contraception was banned in Ireland at the time, it was seized by customs. And this brilliant woman decided to challenge that in the courts. And in December 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of McGee versus Attorney General and Revenue Commissioners that her constitutional rights to privacy and marital affairs were violated. It was a really significant case. And in a very happy coincidence, the road to repeal was launched. On the day when free contraception for women and people aged 17 to 25 is being rolled out. So that was a huge um, moment as well. And it was a great time to sort of look at the 50 years of struggle. And we have come a very long way. Uh, Do get a copy of Road to Repeal if you can. It's beautiful. It's important. It's powerful. And it's a great accessible read. I was showing it to my teenagers this morning. And they were shocked by some of it, which is very good. I'm just so grateful to all the women who are featured in the book. Without them fighting for our rights, Ireland would be a very different place for women today. And I also just want to give a small shout out to a group of older women in Switzerland, of all places, climate activists who the other day laid giant band-aids or sticking plasters as we'd call them on the last piece of glacier ice connecting the swiftly melting Sex Rouge and San on glaciers to protect the Swiss government's inaction on the growing climate emergency and its impacts on human health. The group includes nine women who are part of Senior Women for Climate Protection Switzerland, which is an association that is challenging the Swiss government in the European Court of human rights and they're challenging them on the basis that states should take care of their people especially vulnerable groups like the elderly from the climate crisis and its health impacts. So there's older women uh, making a stand and it's going to be very interesting to see if women or people in other countries take similar action against governments who they perceive are not doing enough about the climate crisis. Now to today's episode. Edwina Dunn OBE is an English entrepreneur in the field of data science and customer centric business strategy. She's a pioneer in the field of big data and along with her husband Clive Humby created the Tesco Club Card that helped Tesco become one of the biggest retailers in the world. They're a husband and wife duo who started their business in the 80s at home from their kitchen table and they've been working together ever since. In 2011, she and her husband sold their final stake in their company to Tesco for, wait for it, £93 million. And they went off to the Caribbean for a while, but they didn't stop working. They eventually set up a consumer insights company, StarCount. And why we have Adwina on is because she's also the founder of the female lead, a brilliant initiative which provides a platform where women can share their stories and wisdom and amplifies the voices of successful women so that younger women can look up and see women working in those fields. I spoke to Edwina about her childhood, about how she became an entrepreneur, about what it's like to have lots and lots of money and about her desire to motivate and empower young women and sparking challenging conversations around talent and ambition and what success looks like to women. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from her. Here she is, Edwina Dunn. Edwina, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. You're the creator of the Female Lead a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to making women's stories more visible and showing how women shape the world today. But you're also the woman who created the Tesco Club Card along with your husband. But before we go into all of that, let's start at the beginning. I've read that at the age of six, what you really wanted to be was a long-distance truck driver. (laughs) Roshin how did you find that
2: you're you're absolutely right I thought it was glamorous I mean I I had a quiet life and 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 you know I thought being in a lorry driving wherever you want I was thinking one of those big rigs from the US and the big open roads not like the roads of
1: now I just thought it looked so exciting but quite an unusual thing for a little girl to dream of I think
2: I was a tomboy. I used to walk around helping my father and I used to sit banging nails into wood and and then I did marquetry. So I was quite a tomboy,
1: really. Mm. Tell me about your childhood then, because you travelled a bit and moved around.
2: Yes. um, So my parents, after they married, went to live in Brazil, uh, Rio de Janeiro. My father was an engineer and he built power stations and um yeah they went out there and they stayed for seven years and they had um three children while they were out there I was the middle one and rather sadly got born in England when they were on leave (laughs) as opposed to Rio de Janeiro so another kind of moment of slight regret although Buxton Derbyshire was very nice
1: it does sound lovely it sounds it sounds quite civilized <laughs> and then you—they did settle in England, like you say. So, what were you like as a young girl and a young woman? Was there signs that you were going to become this very entrepreneurial, uh, creative-minded person who could kind of see problems and know how to solve them?
2: which you know, you're the first person that's asked me about that period of my life, and I think back now. I mean, I always had a Saturday job. I got paid a pittance, but. I worked in supermarkets, believe it or not, (laughs) which I absolutely loved, um, on the cash thing, whether you actually had a till back then. And, um, but I had a babysitting business that I ran with my sister that was highly lucrative and we used to do everything. We had very sad social lives, no boyfriends. So we were always available for babysitting and we'd stay out really late and take a sleeping bag with us. So we were highly popular. And then I got the best gig of all, which was we had friends who were amateur DJs and they used to want to be at the parties rather than DJ. So they asked me to do that. I used to get £10 for a party and I would have the best fun, invite a friend, drink and just play whatever records I liked. It was wonderful.
1: So you were like a part-time DJ, a babysitting executive, um, at the Saturday job in the in the supermarkets. Yeah, there were signs there, wasn't there? <laughs> I think I was always,
2: I think I was always a worker, and I had no money. It was the only way I ever got to go out. So,
1: yeah, it was my source for fun. You also won a scholarship to a school as well. So you must have been very bright and hardworking academically.
2: Well, I think. <laughs> maybe but also my father was a really he was ambitious for us my father kind of taught himself he did night school and he did I'm slightly ashamed to say this after all the years but he did practice 11 plus papers with us in the evening and so when the 11 plus papers came around for me they were just easy because we'd done lots of them and so I sailed through and I <laughs> the convent I was at with the nuns basically said Edwina we never knew you were so clever and I was like mm, okay thank you and I never
1: actually confessed back then that's incredible. I mean, I just must explain to our listeners that the 11 plus is this kind of I don't know if they still do it so much anymore. It's gone, really, isn't it? The 11 plus. I think they still do it in Northern Ireland in certain schools or they did until recently. And it's this very hard exam that happens for kids when they're around 11 or 10 or 11, that kind of. I think mainly 10, 10. Yes. And it's, it's a big deal. And it sort of determined it used to determine the course of your next bit of your academic life. So it was a lot of pressure on very young children.
2: It was huge. I mean, my parents said to me, if you don't pass it, you go to the local comprehensive. And there was a big divide between grammar schools and comprehensive back then. So I went to a grammar school, um, which was actually half private. It was all a bit confusing. Um, And um, but the way I got in was passing this paper. So my Parents never had to pay school fees again. It was a huge bonus.
1: And what about your siblings? Did they also manage to to sail through like that?
2: Well, it's still a slightly sore subject Ah. in that my brother and I did, but we did do our homework, so to speak. And my sister, who's a bit carefree and the young one, didn't. So she did go to the local comprehensive. She's fine. She just survived fine, but yeah. It it was a bit of a divide at the time.
1: I love the way those things never really go. I bet it's something you still mention and still comes up now, (laughs) decades later.
2: So true. She got the ballet lessons, the horse riding. Yeah, yeah.
1: To try and make it up
2: to her. The guitar, the whole lot. Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) So let's talk about how you got drawn into the world of data science. Let's skip on a little bit, because when you got into it, it was all very new. Of course, we know now that everybody's into it and everybody's researching what their customers are doing and what their trends are and all of that. It's, it's a big deal. But when you were kind of in in the 80s, it wasn't such a people didn't know what you were talking about, I imagine. So how did you find your way there? So you're
2: absolutely right. There was nothing about this. And, you know, it you have to track the growth of computers to really understand the path we went down. Um, Computers were really expensive and could hold very little data. So when I started work, um, we were looking at census statistics and looking at what kind of people lived In an area. So we were aggregating data to say, you know, 10,000 people lived in this town and, you know, 8,000 lived within a mile of this store. And so it was a very early, um, quite sophisticated computer program. Um, And that became highly predictive because it was the beginnings of systems like Acorn and Mosaic. Um, and so this was the beginning. A mosaic is now what underpins credit referencing. And, you know, there's credit scores that we all rely on for any form of credit whatsoever. So that was my early work. And, you know, really exciting, really interesting. When we then thought about the next phase, um You have to remember then we thought, well, customer data would be even more interesting. You know, all the bills that you get sent out for your energy. Gosh, this is a talk about energy, right? Or your bank statements and all of these. At the time, when people sent these bills out, they would throw away all the data after the bill had gone out. Nobody could afford to keep it online. Computers were that expensive so when we started collecting customer data no one else was doing it and we literally our growth tracked the growth and power
1: of computers incredible and just going back a little bit then so you were very much I think you were ahead of your time it sounds like you and your husband so first of all did you know when you met your husband that you were going to be this power dynamic couple that you were going to bring the best out of each other in terms of business
2: No, absolutely not. I was not, I didn't think I was very career orientated. My mother was a a wonderful mother, housewife, stay at home, um, do everything. And I, I thought, you know, I would meet a man, live happily ever after, and that I would have babies and that would be my focus. And you know, that was what you dreamt of at that time. It was, it was what we were, it was what was expected of women um, in that kind of period. And then I got to work and the first day of work, I met the man who would then become my husband. And I remember thinking, oh, he's nice and he's clever, which was for me an unusual combination, you know, to think he's nice and he's clever. And um, it didn't happen straight away. But we did get married a year later. Wow. Which nowadays, again, is very fast. But there was a few stories around there. But anyway, (laughs) we got married. We worked together in that business a long time as husband and wife. It was kind of frowned on. And I ended up reporting to the Americans, this big American consultancy. Um, We were just the little British outpost. So um, yeah, there were some rules and protections built around it, but yeah, so we worked together um, as husband and wife for quite a long time before we made this leap into um, what was our own business.
1: Edwina, were you both then, um, I'm just thinking back to the time, were you both very well up on Uh, developments in technology, for example, did you know the latest computers and were you always looking at? We need to have the latest. We need to keep track of because that was a time I I know things move now and the the iPhone 14 is out, I think yesterday. Things are always moving. But at that time, the the rate of progress and change in terms of computers, I mean, I'm thinking of email coming and all the things. It was such a, a rapid kind of thing. Were you both on that like a bonnet, you know, just constantly surveying what was going on?
2: We were always in a business that was very, very technology led, data and technology led. And that at the time was very unusual. I picked a good man, not just as a husband, but as a business partner, because he was a mathematician and computer scientist. Okay,
1: you really uh, did.
2: (laughs) I, I chose well. I chose well. And then all the things that were not natural to him, like, you know, being excited about what we were doing and being a communicator, being business orientated, they fell to me. So that became my role. And so we ended up being a perfect matched opposite skills duo. Okay, well, listen, tell me
1: about, um you had a, an office in your bedroom, I think, when you both started off together with your with branching out. But how did you get from the bedroom office to Creating the Tesco club card. What was the trajectory?
2: <laughs> yeah, we picked the smallest room in the house because <laughs> we thought we don't want to disrupt our private life. So we ended up in this tiny little room and ridiculously bought a franking machine because we thought it made us look grown up and and professional. I mean, some of the things we did. Um, it was five years of hard Um, outreach um, relationship building before Tesco knocked on our door so we were working with people like BMW and cable and wireless and what was then Lotus 123 which was then acquired by IBM so we built a business step by step through those five years Um, and thought we were doing quite well. It was hard work, but we were doing quite well. And then along came Tesco and um, we'd invested in building this technology platform that was ready for customer data. And they basically had this idea and they said, this idea is gonna generate a huge amount of data and there is no spreadsheet, Lotus 123, IBM, no spreadsheet that can hold it. So no one can analyse it. Can you help us? And this was a moment that changed our business careers and, and, and our life, actually. And so we said, yes, we can do it. And that was that was the pivotal moment. And interestingly enough, what we didn't realize afterwards was that. We just got a pocket, a packet of data at that time, and it was pretty big. We analyzed it. We found all the exciting patterns of what happened when you gave a thank you club card to a small proportion of Tesco customers. And we were able to say to Tesco, yes, not only do they like it and use it, it actually increases the value of their shopping basket. That was the that was the moment where they realized, wow, there really could be something big in this. You give something away and people like it and spend more. And that was really the idea behind it.
1: And take me into the boardroom. I presume it was a boardroom with the chair of Tesco, Lord McLaurin. And apparently you presented him with your findings. You showed him what it was. And he said to you, what scares me about this is that you know more about my customers after three months than I know after 30 years. So it really was a massive thing. Did you feel it in the room at that moment when he said that?
2: I mean, it was... Charged. It was the biggest moment for Tesco in a decade. There was so much riding on it. And we were invited to present because, you know, the guy who'd commissioned us, a, a, a guy called um, Gar- uh, Grant Harrison, basically said, I know my bosses, I know the board, they're going to want to ask lots of questions. And there is, you can't tell me enough for me to confidently answer those questions. So you have to go in directly, which was a very rare invitation from the board. And it was Ian McLaurin then, he was just simple Ian McLaurin, was really the only person that anybody looked at in the room. And so when we'd finished the presentation, there was this incredibly long silence and everyone on the board, looked down, everyone. And so it was this excruciating silence where everybody thought, what's he gonna say? And no one said anything, but um, Lord McLaurin as he is now. His his simple and kind of comprehensive summary I feel is still one of the most modest things I've ever heard um, a leader say which is you know more that that tribute to data and evidence I think I will never forget because it's rare for a leader not to say I know more because I've been in the business 30 years it's still a rare thing to find.
1: It is and I think you're right I think when someone can admit to what they don't know that's huge. And it's always an impressive thing instead of it being what people perceive it as as weak. It's not weak. It's the opposite, because you are then able to learn from other people and to get that insight, which they did with you. I mean, it changed kind of the retail landscape, I suppose. I mean, you you described it there as you give something to customers. So on, on paper, you think "Well, we're giving them a bit extra. But actually, that loyalty And that brand loyalty that comes from that is huge. Um, Was there any downside for the consumer? I was thinking about it earlier, knowing I was coming to talk to you. It was brilliant for the retailers. But was it a time when suddenly now we know so much about you as, as a customer? I mean, we hear about GDPR now. We hear about privacy now. Those things weren't so much talked about back then. But were you kind of, in a way, spying on the consumer in a way that they hadn't been spied on before?
2: I understand why that question is important, but you know people love something for nothing, and it was a very, very straight and true transaction, which is you know the data that Tesco collect is quite modest it's the items that you put in your basket, and you tell them how many people are in your household so it's intimate, but they never look at an individual. In fact, their business, their brand would be destroyed if they ever broke that confidence of, of looking at more than a kind of respectable cohort of people. I mean, Tesco invested $150 million minimum per year. In these rewards, 150 million pounds. That is a brave, bold move, and they did that right from the beginning. And so, you know, people were really getting um value out of this. Of course, what it enabled them to do was attract customers to visit them because what people do is they tend to shop around. And so, what Tesco were trying to do was get one more visit from people who shop around, or maybe just one more item in the shopping basket. Those two things, one more item, one more visit, equated to millions and millions of pounds, in billions, in fact, and Tesco actually doubled, doubled. So they were number two, nearly three in the marketplace. Sainsbury's were way ahead of them. They doubled their market share in less than three years
1: incredible. And that's down to you and your husband kind of seeing that. Title. That's such a huge achievement. And I suppose all the copycat club cards must have come straight away as well when the people realised what Tesco were doing. It took
2: quite a long time. We were amazed. I mean, we were called the secret weapon. That's what we were called. I mean, I don't like to think of us as a weapon, but it was a new science. It truly really was. Do you know who came to us second? It was nobody in the UK. Nobody got it. Nobody really understood that it was the data. It was the Americans who came second and they came and found us. And to our embarrassment, we didn't know who they were. You know, we'd heard of Walmart, Uh, we'd never heard of Kroger. It's like, who's Kroger? (laughs) Yeah. So, So we knew them, but Kroger, it's like, who are they? We found out. They had three and a half thousand stores. They were something like a 70, 80 billion dollar company today. So we we then joined forces with them. They said to us, we want to do a Tesco. That's how they appointed us. We created a joint venture with them. This multi billion dollar company sent out one of our. Best and brightest teams with the technology and the data knowledge. Today, they are over $120 billion.
1: Astonishing. And, Edwina, you're speaking of money. So, let's talk about money because you sold your final stake in your business to Tesco in 2011. And, I mean, is it crude or is it rude to talk about money? I mean, you made a lot, a lot of millions yourself, you and your husband, right? We did. We did. We, you know,
2: we, we perhaps as Brits would have been shy enough not to share that, but it was public knowledge because it was printed in the Tesco report. So we thought, you know, we're going to embrace it. And we're going to say, you know, it was somewhere around the 91 plus million. And that's what we made. And it was all a bit of a, it was it was kind of we never really thought it would happen, and you know they just handed over the check. There were no quibbles. We made Tos- Tesco a lot of money. Let's be honest, but we got the check. We spent a year saying thank you and goodbye to everyone around the world, and then we had a year off, and because um, we were tired. I mean, it was a it was a huge journey. Fifteen hundred people. Um, around the world so yeah it was a massive it was a massive undertaking and something I'm incredibly proud of but we we'd done our time and it was time to step back but
1: Edwina can I just ask you I mean the idea of getting a cheque for that money and putting it in your bank what does it feel like when you have I mean I know you were probably doing okay before then you're paying you're being paid well you were comfortable you know what's it like to have 90 million quid in the bank
2: Um, it's a really strange experience and you think it will all be joy, but when you are business people who've grown from having nothing, really nothing to that, there's a big weight of responsibility that lands on you. Will you be savvy in how you use it? Will it make you happier or will it make you worry? Will people treat you differently? it's surprising it's not all it's not all easy or a joy and suddenly you know in truth you become a target for everyone with a good idea and everybody with a good cause and so you kind of slightly hide for a while because you don't know what to make of it all Mm. um so you went
1: you went to the Caribbean you hid in a nice place yes we did we're not we're not very good skiers,
2: but we love the sun and the water. So, yeah, we headed off and yeah, we had a wonderful time. I mean, it was a joy. And, you know, the kids were still young enough to really appreciate it and not
1: expect it. And so, yeah, it was, it was a happy time. And this bit really intrigues me because I was, I'm just sitting here thinking, and I'm sure our listeners are, what would I do if I had 90 million quid in the bank? Would I ever work another day in my life? But you two, workaholics, felt the, the pull of work back. Tell me about that because was it both of you? Was it one of you more than the other? Or how did that happen? It's
2: You know, there were some things that are very core values to both of us. Curiosity is one of them. We are always fascinated by patterns in society or in data particularly. And also, I think we benefited. I think we stayed young by having incredibly bright young people around us in the business. And you really miss that. You know, when you retire, you suddenly are exposed and with a whole heap of older people. And it's not always as stimulating and invigorating as you find young people who've got ideas and they want to achieve things. That's highly motivating. And so, although, you know, we love our, um, you know, the people who we've grown up with and who who share some of our history and our age, we also really love the new ideas and the new talents of the technology world the data world and people so yeah we missed it we missed the stimulation and we'd always worked together it was part of our life and also our children were starting to be interested in the same field and you know they both studied science or maths in some way so you then want to encourage them. So it just becomes, you know, it's about like businesses where it's so-and-so and and sons or so-and-so and and daughters. You want them to have the same fun and some of the same stimulation
1: but I suppose the danger or the worry must be as a high net worth individual I think that's what you'd be described as that your <laughs> kids will just want to coast on that and want to kind of just no, my, you've got loads of money just give me the money I don't want to have to do anything how did you navigate that st- side of parenting or did you need to it sounds like they were quite motivated themselves
2: I you know that is a really important question and I think it's one you know we all try and navigate in our own way we I think, importantly, we always talked about the joy of achievement and progression um, and discovery. And we, we tried, in a way, to play down the trappings of simply a wealthy life because I, I think sometimes, you know, there is a certain entitlement to wealth that's unattractive. And if you cluster with people like that, you don't always have the nicest experience. And so I think, you know, our our kids, they're not kids anymore, but our kids just found people who were on a journey trying to do something much more interesting and fun than people who could go into a VIP lounge and order a thousand pounds worth of ridiculously expensive champagne.
1: Right. Right. So you, they, you grew up, as they grew up, you talked to them about the difference of things and the value of stuff and the importance of respecting other people too because I think that must be something, if you're moving in that world where you have so much privilege um, or access to cash, access to money, that you kind of might easily go down a road of looking down on other people who don't have that.
2: I think, I think it's underestimated how important in one's own life it is to feel Um, respect for others and for others to respect you and I don't think money is respect I think how you got it maybe what you've done certainly is or even what you might do is and so I, I think money can create enemies it can create jealousy it can create lots of negatives it's it's not as easy as and as fun as it's made out to be
1: okay well thank you for those insights into it it makes me feel a little bit better that I don't have 90 million in the bank but I still think it'd be quite a nice experience going on to the female lead and what brought you into that um obviously I would imagine data science especially at the beginning and probably still to this day very male dominated and you were walking into a lot of rooms with a lot of men uh, in in chairs and a lot of men in, in important positions um so you have seen that and what 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 was that like for you as a as a woman in business um in a male-dominated sector how did you find it were there some dodgy moments and some different challenges because of your gender
2: oh for sure a lot and i think the thing that kept me going and got me through it was my utter belief and confidence in what we did. And so I've always focused on outcomes and, you know, the the end results. Because if you worry about the process, um, I don't think you ever really fit in. I mean, you know, I I remember one time, the, the top guys at Tesco said to me, um oh yeah you need to come to this meeting and I was like okay and I said where is it and what time is it and they said 7 30 Welland Garden City and I I was living in Chiswick with children and I was like I'm really sorry I can't do that and they were like what do you mean you can't do it it's like no I can't do it because I've got children and I'm a mother did you know that and it was like oh okay well can someone else do it and I said Probably. And that was it. But so there were lots and lots of times where you kind of get, you know, the assumptions are it is a man's world. I mean, those men had children.
1: I was going to say they were dads. Didn't stop them. Yeah, but did
2: it? <laughs> no, it didn't stop them. And there's a kind of there was very much a macho culture of let's start really early. Um, and not stop for lunch and all of these things. And that happened all over the world. I mean, gosh, when we went to Korea, it was even harder. So this was the business acquired by Tesco in Korea um, called Home Plus. And the leadership there was ex-Samsung. Oh. I mean, really powerful dynasty. But it's a male dynasty. And so you walk into that and you are just a completely foreign body. And um, yeah, there are lots of challenges, lots of challenges.
1: So we should talk about, I mean, I mentioned you going back to work. You set up another company with your husband called Star Count, And this is in uh, data as well. What did you feel you still had to achieve? That's another thing, because you'd done a huge amount and you made a lot of money. And is there still mountains to climb then? Is that, is that what you felt?
2: Yes. Yeah, it was the curiosity element. So when we st- when Clive and I met and we started work, we were classifying people by where they live. So the neighborhood you choose to live in reflects something of you as a consumer. It's not perfect, but you kind of can look at a neighborhood and you know what it stands for and kind of the bias, what people read, what people watch, all of that. That was the early science. Then you are what you buy or what you eat, which was the era with Tesco and Kroger and all the others, which is very defining how you live, how you eat. We were interested in social media data and the science there is compelling and it's part of the future, which is we are what we love. What we signal on social media about what we follow, our passions, our interests, That is one of the most important um, indicators of how we will behave in all of our dealings um, as a consumer and as a citizen. So we wanted to analyze all the social media data. And in fact, we built a a tool and a, a kind of geographic link between social And geographic, so where you live and what you do on social. And it was really, really exciting. My daughter, it was one of the best people in that business. I know I'm biased, but she (laughs) was. And she now runs that business. And Clive and I have stepped away um, happily. And she is going to take that science on to the next level. So she's done an amazing job. My son worked there for a while, but he's moved on to other things now. But um, it's going to be important in the future. And, you know, that excites all of us.
1: So that's what Star Account does at the moment. And what kind of companies would be your clients then or your daughter's clients?
2: Oh, amazing clients. So, like one of the biggest advertising groups in the world has embraced this fully. I think there are maybe another two that are very keen and interested. One of the biggest and most prestigious property groups um, in the UK, the Crown Estates, is applying this. So, you know, and sports areas. So,
1: quite some pretty exciting groups of people. And it sounds like it's in safe hands with your daughter. Her name is Rowena, is that right? Oh, you are good. Yes. I don't think I realised how close it was to my name. I'm slightly embarrassed about that. It's not that close. It could be worse. I mean, don't beat yourself up about that. I think it's fine. It's a lovely name.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing
1: health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, let's talk about the female lead. The original idea that you had in telling women's stories, and I suppose it's the idea that women's stories aren't often front and centre. There's such amazing women who have done things throughout history who never got the kind of kudos that that their male counterparts got. But your original idea was a movie, even though you're not a movie maker.
2: (laughs) I was outrageously, I mean, I've never seen barriers and, and I don't think I've ever truly been aware of talent versus expectation. But I did want to make a movie. I thought it'd be so exciting, glamorous. And then I found out how incredibly difficult it is to write a script and for it not to be cheesy or corny. It was a big wake up
1: call. So you ditched that idea. But then the female lead um, has been a a huge success. You've got I mean, you've got two point four million followers on Instagram. I'm just I'm now this is me being very single. You didn't buy any of those, did you, Adwina? They're real followers.
2: We bought nothing. In fact, we've got, I think it's like 3.4 or 5 on LinkedIn. And the guys at LinkedIn said to us, we have never seen anything grow organically as we watch the female lead. They were amazed and very complimentary. So it's all been organic. And I do genuinely believe it's because we don't have any bias at all in terms of an owner or a brand advertising strategy. We listen to women and we amplify their voices. So I think people understand when they hear something that it is just the truth. It it may not be nice, but it's the truth. So
1: tell us about the female lead. What does it do? What are some of the projects that you've uh, run?
2: Well, So going back to your point, when I walked into all these boardrooms, it was all men. When I was at school, all the heroes and leaders were men. When you Google leader, CEO, high achiever, it's all men. So as a woman... You know what are we taught about the expectation of life in the future? It's still get married and live happily ever after. It's kind of outdated. Um, it's lovely, but it's outdated. And so, um, and one in two marriages end in divorce. It's it's a sad truth. So, what we want to do is show women that there are women alive today. So not just. Marie Curie and Ada Lovelace and all these old dead women we want to show living breathing amazing women high achievers we want to share their stories and show that you know they didn't get there overnight they're not celebrities who are airbrushed and who just overnight became the kardashians or um you know I don't know, someone else, the Love Island team. It doesn't happen like that. We wanted to show real women. And we wanted to gift this to schools. So we wanted to get in front of girls and boys when they hadn't given up yet on the idea of who they could be and how successful they could be. Um, And so that was really the idea. So we started with a book. Then we made films, we gifted those to schools and we thought, oh, job done. And then we were approached by endless older women, business women who said, this is an inspiration, we need it too. And so the female lead grew from just being an idea to help in education to something that I think belongs in every business environment, in every household, which is you can be more than, you know, three things. I mean, my career's advice was teacher, nurse or secretary. Nothing wrong with any of those jobs. But there are hundreds of jobs. And also, why should women be embarrassed about looking for a a highly paid job as opposed to a caring Worthy job, so so much to do, so much excitement, and I always feel I've got like ten things I still haven't done that I need to.
1: And is it only in Britain? Because it it feels to me like it should be in other countries. And I think you should dive into Ireland, and maybe we could help you with that.
2: Oh, I would love to be in Ireland. We are global, seven and a half million followers globally. Very strong in America. Look, India, Australia. So um, yes, we have free books and films to give to any school. So anybody can ask for them and we share it all
1: for free. That's fantastic. Tell me about Disrupt Your Feed, which came about from researching to the social media as we discussed already and linked into mental health. What was the idea behind Disrupt Your Feed? We work with an incredible psychologist called Dr.
2: Terry Apter. She's an expert in teenagers, and the the worry she's just published a new book, The Teenager Interpreter. And we've worked with her for a number of years. We interviewed girls at schools and discovered that they were binging on about six hours of social media per day, and that they admitted that that binging a bit like binging on takeaways made them feel a bit ill at the end of it they were kind of riveted they were drawn towards it but then they knew it was kind of bad for them so we created from this research with Terry the concept of you know just like with with a with a takeaway every now and again it's good to have a home-cooked meal And so we introduced some new female leads to them, some women that they could follow that were not airbrushed and were not celebrity-created icons. And uh, we then researched again and found that these real women gave them stability, gave them self-confidence, made them realize that there are lots of ways to be a woman that are not about having you know, a gap at the top of your legs because you're not quite thin enough or what have you. Um, and so, you know, this research really landed well. And in fact, I'm so glad you mentioned it because we've just gone back to some of these girls five years wow,
1: later. Fascinating.
2: And we, and we are going to publish in the new year. I would love to talk to you again because we're going to publish in a new year the new findings and the new campaign around disrupt your feed because you know we wanted to know does this have a lasting impact does it change the future of girls when they see real life you know interesting striving um,
1: women of achievement and we hope and believe it does that is fascinating I have so much more I want to talk to you we haven't got that much longer so we might rattle through these and the other thing you've been looking at which is I'm very invested and interested in is hybrid working and remote working and the impact of the pandemic working model on on women particularly now I love I just full declaration I've been working at home for the last all since through the pandemic I love it it's changed my life um I don't want to go back to the office. That's me. And I know it's different for everybody. But what's been your own take on it and what kind of research have you done on that?
2: So we're working with Dr. Maddie Wyatt, who is um, an, an academic working with King's Business School. And we found some new factors, um, some new that particularly relate to women I can't really tell you what the findings are because we haven't published yet but I think they will be important and useful and they will be published um, broadly um, as an academic paper but also as a general access pdf download and we'll be sharing that in live's Um, over the next couple of months. So I hope that will be useful to you. Oh, I
1: would absolutely love to hear that. So we'll definitely talk to you about that again. And the other thing I want to ask you about is this concept called the untitled mindset. And this is the idea that working women sometimes feel less entitled than their male counterparts and research that you did found that 44% of women feel less entitled to pay rises and promotions compared to their male colleagues and that 45% have never asked for a pay rise compared to only 34% of men. So what is this um, unentitled mindset and what can we do about it?
2: Well, first and foremost, this is not a criticism of women. Women are clever. They are confident. They are ambitious but society tilts the platform to men. So the workplace has been designed by men for men. The whole process of reviews, salary increases, all of that is very opaque. The rules are not clear. Is it a conversation in the corridor? Is it the use of certain terminology or the ability to say, yes, of course, I'll go to America at the drop of a hat, because I don't have to worry about the children and the family. Which of these factors affects it? This is this kind of slight imbalance that women feel comes across as a reluctance. Hence the myths of women are not decisive or ambitious or things like that. It's because they're worried about the rest of the things that they have to sort out. So the unentitled mind, mindset is very, very real. Um, and it's very sharp in areas that are opaque because of very dated um, practices around, Yeah, no one really knows the rules. And so we're kind of making them up as we go along. But if it doesn't feel right, it won't be you. Hmm. So we're trying to change that and demystify and make more transparent some of these processes within businesses. Mm.
1: And have you ever felt unentitled? Have you ever had that mindset? It doesn't sound like you have.
2: No, I absolutely have always felt and challenged, you know, why why am I doing this? Why am I qualified to do it? But I think the motivation is people underestimate you, um, look over you, Um, you know don't give you the the kind of um, I I suppose the moment of I can do this and the respect that goes with that and I think it's a huge motivator women are constantly underestimated I was underestimated every single step of my career so you have to be fairly tough because honestly most of the journey I had no idea we were being successful I had no idea that we would be successful. I had no idea that what I did mattered as much as it did. I mean, you have to be immensely strong, particularly as a woman. This whole idea that somehow you're born ready and that you can do this and that you know you can do it is a complete fallacy all the way through. You doubt it. You think, am I doing it? Am I successful? Is this going to work? Um, You know, I remember when Tesco said, you know, that you've done really well over here, but I'm not sure you're going to be able to do it. America's really tough. You won't be able to do it in America, but well done for trying. And then we did it. And it's like, There's such a motivation from people saying you can't do something. It does something to me, which is I will. I will show them. I will do it. And I think it's been a great motivator. And I think, you know, I think so many women and girls worry about having doubts, having fears. I think they just make you have to be tougher, push through them and say, you know, I might not. But I'm gonna give it a go. It's that it's that desire to show others that you can and you will and that you have. And you know, I think everybody has that. No, you know, Oprah Winfrey said to me, she said to others, but she said to me, I was there, I was very excited. She basically said the reason she's so wealthy is because the studio is completely underestimated her ability to build an audience I love that Oprah Winfrey she doubted herself all the way
1: but also Oprah Winfrey said to me I'd love to be able to say that as Oprah said to me one day (laughs) what was she like
2: she was absolutely fabulous she was the same behind the camera as she was in front of it and I truly admire that she is she's an amazing woman
1: and how did you get to be with her?
2: so we quite often as the female lead we do events on big stages so we did a big event where uh, they'd created um you know they'd done the film wrinkle in time we had reese witherspoon mindy kaling oprah winfrey we did a big panel we had a discussion we had the whole of disney there and we had a huge audience and you know, these ladies spoke their wisdom to this audience and the film is still on our website. It was it was fantastic.
1: Incredible. Now, I I saw all of that at the time and I didn't realise it was the female lead. So that's amazing. What a wonderful thing that you did. I want to ask you about your nice and clever husband that you're married to 40 years. And how has that all, you know, continued through this incredible career achievement and you've managed not to kill each other working together all that time?
2: (laughs) Well, He's not always nice, but there again, nor am I. Um, But we survive, you know, we respect each other's talents. And I think so much of a relationship is about that, you know, yeah, you're different. You see the world differently, but you have to respect the special skills that we bring to partnerships, to work relationships, all of that. So I think if you keep the respect, if you can still look at each other and go, you know, they're really annoying on that. But at the same time, they're really good and clever on that. If you've got that, you've got something always to hold on to. And, um, yeah, I don't know why it works. I mean, he is everything that I am not. And... You know, I don't like this idea of being two halves, but I do think two people with opposite skills make a phenomenal powerhouse together, whether it's a marriage or whether it's work. It just, for me, it's so much better than one person leading.
1: That's your one of your leadership sort of um, teachings, isn't it? The power of two.
2: I'm really passionate about the power of two. And I hope in the future to write about it a bit more because there's this very old-fashioned doctrine that there is only one leader. I mean, why? Why is there only one leader? It's interesting
1: then? you say that because we had, um, I don't know if you know about our campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, which was to introduce legal abortion. And, you know, it, people were very sneery men a lot at the beginning because the the leadership team of that um, Together for Yes campaign was three women and they couldn't get their heads around the fact that there wasn't like a hierarchy, typical hierarchy, one leader. They had different women doing different aspects of it. And it was a very successful campaign and the abortion was legalized in Ireland. I think you're definitely onto something. I think it should be written about more and maybe it's a very female thing because the patriarchal thing is the one leader, isn't it?
2: Yes, but, but that is exactly the problem. I mean, what you achieved in Ireland was and is phenomenal And I believe so much more can be achieved by the sharing of skills and power. And, you know, I think it's a male construct to say there is one leader. And I I think it's not true.
1: I agree. And I want to ask you some quick fire questions before you go, Edwina. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. What has been your proudest achievement?
2: Oh, goodness. Uh, You know, I mean, obviously, Tesco Club Card made my career. I'm very proud of that. The female lead makes me feel good. You know, I love it.
1: Best and worst things about being an entrepreneur? You're alone. You're so alone. And...
2: There are so, you know, and you never switch off. You just, it goes round and round in your head the whole time. You worry it, you change it, you adapt it. It's, it's lonely being an entrepreneur and, and that's why women have to help each other because women have that spirit in them and they should not
1: be encouraged to compete with each other. And what about the best thing? Oh,
2: Gosh, it's like it's the only race I will ever win, Rasheen. I I can't I can't win a normal race. I can't climb a mountain, but I can win in business. And oh, my God, that's
1: so much fun. Brilliant. And what is next for you? Are you ever going to fulfill your dream of being a glamorous truck driver?
0: <laughs> uh
2: yeah, I think I discovered Aston Martins before then, which kind of slightly changed my mind. But no, I'm I'm not a fast car person anymore. Um, the world's changed. So, um, well, yeah, um, will I ever be? Do you know, I lost the desire to travel the world, having done a global business. Now I love all the things that are about friends and family and celebrating. But I still love the idea of doing what you just said, the power of two, writing something like that. So I have endless ambitions. And then
1: just another nosy question about your spare time and you and your husband and what you like to spend your money on and what you like to do for a good time. What's your indulgences?
2: Oh, anything to do with the water, the sea, the sun, always. We love it. Absolutely love it. We've just had a party. We did a big fancy dress party for all of our family and friends. And after COVID, it was just the most wonderful thing to do, to remember that that is the only thing that really counts, family and friends.
1: Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Adrina, and um, thank you for coming on. And we've two reasons for you to come back. So I do hope you will.
2: Uh, you've been a great and interesting interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Rasheen.
1: That's it for now. Thank you so much to Edwina Dunn. And again, that book I mentioned earlier is called Road to Repeal. Do keep an eye out for it in your bookshops. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at It Women's Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram or email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.